0: Welcome into the House of L podcast. I am Lawrence Holmes. This is episode 108. I really like this episode, so I'm going to try to get to it because I know I'm asking you to do some heavy lifting. This is a pretty long episode, but you'll understand why after I explain what it is that this episode is. Obviously, while watching the, The Last Dance, when... They went back and they showed the Bulls after winning their first championship, going to the White House to to meet George H. W. Bush at the time, play basketball at the White House, all that stuff. I thought it was an interesting omission of Craig Hodges. Like I think they showed BJ shooting a three when the story of the Bulls going to the White House then was Craig Hodges being there in his dashiki and delivering a letter to the president of the United States. And so I started thinking, somebody's going to talk to Craig Hodges over the next couple of days. If anyone has some insight on it, they're going to, they're going to spend some time talking to that man as they should. I had actually already done interview with him about 16 months ago. I did an interview with him about this letter that, that he wrote. And Tim Hallam, who works for the Bull still, was key in getting the letter to George H.W. Bush at the time. And the letter raised concerns about all sorts of issues in America. I think a lot of the issues that we're still fighting about today. And it cited all of this stuff. And let me just read you a passage from Craig Hodges' book, Longshot, which I really can't recommend enough. To you, He says, I have my letter on the bus on the way to the White House. I told Tim Hallam, the public relations director for the Bulls, that I'd written something to give to the president. He looked at me like I was out of my damn mind. Then he said it would be best if he handed the letter to Bush's press secretary. I planned to give the president the letter myself, but I wanted to ensure it was read. So I followed protocol and gave my letter to Tim. I also told some of my Bulls teammates on the bus. By this point, they were used to my political outspokenness. And as usual, the response was something like, man, you're crazy, Hodge. In the NBA, even though 75% of the players were black, you still couldn't be upfront that helping black people was part of your personal mission. Race-based charity or political action had to happen in secret. Subtle and not-so-subtle pressures from management and media prevented many of us from upsetting the corporate order of the league. A whole lot of players knew more should be done for the communities most of us came from, yet fear of losing our spot always knocked out the urgent need to fight racism and structural poverty, but not for me. And there's more in here about all of this. And there's the the conversation that he had not only with George H.W. Bush, but with George W. Bush. And here's a, an excerpt of that conversation. Where are you from? George Bush, George W. asked me slowly and loudly as if I might not speak his language. Chicago Heights, Illinois, I answered. He looked amazed. Well, that's an awesome garment, Bush Jr. replied. I smiled, thanked him in English, and walked with the rest of the team on the south lawn of the White House where Bush Sr. and his wife, Barbara, waited for us. There was one notable absence from the team on the visit that day. During the finals against the Lakers, when it was all but assured that we had the championship sewn up, Michael Jordan, who everyone thought did not have a political bone in his body, said in the locker room, I'm not going to the White House. Fuck Bush. I didn't vote for him. True to his word, Jordan didn't join us that day. The Chicago Tribune and New York Times wrote mildly critical articles about Jordan's decision to snub the president, but most of the media ignored the move. I bet you didn't know that. That's Craig Hodges' truth. So, his book is called Long Shot. Here's how this whole thing plays out, and it's why I'm I'm asking you to do some heavy lifting on this episode. I got the opportunity to do something in my neighborhood, and whenever it comes from to me do something in Hyde Park, like I get really excited. Rob McKay, who is the owner of the Connect Gallery, which is an incredible space for artists in Harper Square, in Hyde Park, to do things, reached out to me. I've known Rob for a really long time because he's good friends with my brother Braxton, who they've known throughout music and culture. And if you don't know anything about my brother Braxton, you should probably look him up too especially if you're a house music fan but if you're a house music fan you probably know the the name Braxton Holmes or at least you should anyway Braxton kind of reconnected me with Rob and was like hey they he wants you to do something so do it and for the most part if my brother asked me to do something I'd do it then Rob told me what it was and what it was was a sit down with Craig Hodges there had been a 30 for 30 film kind of put together for Craig Hodges about his trip to the white house and his activism. Think of it as an early version of the last dance, but about Craig Hodges. And so they said, well, we want you to come in and interview him with Rob. Now Rob's a guy that's a little bit more culture than sports. I might be a little bit more sports than culture. So you put us both together and then put us in a room with Craig Hodges, and you you get an interview. It was honestly a really, it was a wonderful night. Like, the conversation was great. I think that Craig Hodges is someone that people tend to forget, both as a player and as an activist, and I'm glad that his name is continuing to, to be put back up in, into the zeitgeist because of the way that Michael Jordan's lack of activism has been on display over the last couple of weeks with these episodes. So we talked, and we talked for a long time about a lot of different things. And there's some basketball stuff in here too, which I think is is fascinating. But I wanted you, since you're going to be seeing Craig Hodge's name, you're going to see him, and he might even end up back on my show. I don't know. I, I would love to talk to him again because I found – I found him to be one of the most interesting people that I've ever talked to, one of the most compelling interviews that I've ever had. And it happened in front of a live audience. I've never aired this. I've never, like, this is the only place that this was put out was on Rob's podcast called The Habitual Line Stepper. And I asked him, I said, I reached out to Rob this week and I said, I, I know that you put that out a while ago, but I was wondering if I can have access to it, if I could put it on one of my platforms or a couple of my platforms. And he's like, yeah, no problem. So I got the MP3 of it and I wanted to share it with you because I think that it's interesting. Now I I made a couple of editorial choices and one of them was there's a video that we play at the beginning of this, but I think that there's enough audio in it that you'll get the idea that it's, it's a portion, a trailer of the movie that was being put together at the time for Craig Hodges, the 30 for 30 that was being put together at the time for him. And then there's a sit-down. So this is in front of a group of about 150 people at the gallery. So that's where you're hearing the reaction stuff. You'll hear Rob McKay in there interviewing along with Craig Hodges. But I thought it was good and timely, so that's why I wanted to share it. And I wanted to have as many people as possible here because I think that he's a really interesting guy. I also really implore you, his book, Shot, is tremendous. There's a lot of great stuff in there. Not just about 91, not 91, 92. Not just about the White House visit. Not just about winning championships. There's all sorts of stuff in here. There's stuff about R. Kelly in here. And there's a... A troubling connection between Craig and R. Kelly. Not on Craig's part. Anyway, pick up the book, Long Shot. But I won't delay this anymore. This was my sit-down with Rob McKay of Connect Gallery and Craig Hodges talking about his career and his life.
1: This is the first one, so bear with me. Shit. I'm a cuss. I'm We're going to have a good time tonight. Uh, So Lawrence, I've known Lawrence for a long time through his brother, Braxton. (laughs) And we already talked about that. (laughs) And she's laughing because you know, like big brother kind of thing. But I've known Lawrence. When I thought about this, I knew who I should call. I called Braxton, he was like, I got you. I called Mario, oh, I got you. I called Lawrence. Nothing. <laughs> but he finally called, called me back, and here we are. So, introducing Lawrence Holmes.
0: It's funny, because Big Brother literally just, just walked, walked, the walked into the door. So, <laughs> as we were speaking, Big Brother walked into the door. My name is Lawrence Holmes. I, I host the show on The Score, Sports Radio 670. I'm also the host of the Bears pre- and post-game show, on NBC Sports Chicago, and being able to do something in my own neighborhood is fantastic. Not having to leave my own neighborhood to do something fun and exciting is fantastic. And when Rob told me about, oh, well you're gonna sit down and and talk with Craig, the reason I ain't not get back to you is because my schedule is ridiculous. So like earlier today, I was doing play-by-play for DePaul basketball, and I was like, I really want to do this. And when you told me it was at night, I knew that I could do it and we could finally pull it off. But knowing the history of what Craig accomplished throughout his career and how he kind of forged a path for there to be dissidents in athletes, I wanted to pick his brain. I, I was desperate to talk to him about all sorts of stuff. Whether it's the game itself, which I enjoy learning about, or how we can better get messages across that athletes are not commodities, that we need to stop treating them as such, and the concept of shut up and dribble, um, the the dog whistle stuff that goes on whenever we get to a point where someone wants to talk junk about an athlete, like the, especially the stuff with Laura Ingram was really disturbing for a lot of reasons, but specifically when it comes to LeBron, you know how many kids LeBron is putting through college that he has given money to kids and helped save a bunch of kids from Akron and decided that he was going to invest in their education from the time that they were in grade school and to have someone try to discount what he's done by telling him to shut up and dribble, it's an example of how far we still have to go to getting people the respect that they deserve when they talk about issues that are important to them. And I think Craig really blazed the trail, not only with what he did, but the way that he did it. Speaking to power and speaking directly to power and speaking for all people's. And that's one of the things that I think got lost um, in, in, the, in going back and kind of researching how m- the media looked at what had happened. And I, I mean, I'll tell Craig this, but I did some digging. I, I talked with Tim Hallam. I, I talked with a couple of reporters who covered you at the time. And the way that it was described, and he talks about it a little bit in the book, I don't think was fair to the message itself, and so having the messenger here and having an opportunity to hear his story firsthand, I think is really important. And I, I just, I also think that if you've read the book, if you haven't, I see that Craig's got some copies here. You should get it. But the storytelling ability and him hearing in the book where where Craig says that. I just loved writing and I just wrote and wrote and wrote. And for all of us, in whatever our chosen profession or art is, it's the same thing. You know, with, with me, it's delving into sports and being ridiculous about watching sports, breaking down statistics, looking at different ways of viewing the game, talking to people inside of the game. I spent 20 minutes this week talking with the president of the White Sox about batting stances. I mean, that, like, it's stupid stuff like that. It doesn't fall too far off of my family tree because my brother mentioned earlier, same way with music. Where lock him in the basement for five hours and he still might not hear the exact sound that he wants to hear. So hearing Craig talk so passionately about writing how writing was freeing for him is very, very exciting. So
1: when I, when I talked to Craig, one of the things that I thought was so dope is that um, I come from a household where civil rights was huge. You know, treating people as individuals was huge. And leading with love was huge. But I also came from a household where I was taught to love everybody but be pro-black and Craig came from the same type of household. My mother and Craig's grandmother grew up together, you know, so we have a connection. Um, And he came from the same type of upbringing that myself and my siblings, you know, uh, how we grew up. So that connected us even more. And the simple fact that now I'm a person where I love people, I love children, and everything that I do is trying to grow community. And Craig is the same way. And one of the things, when we, when we were talking about um, him coming to do the Habitual Line Stepper podcast, he told me that basketball was a job. What he does for the community and young people, that's his passion. So that's why he's an habitual line stepper. So um, we want to move on and kind of show you something that he shared with me. Um, You guys probably don't even know he has a 30 for 30 ESPN. And we're going to show, I guess, a trailer for We'll
0: give you a nice trailer so you can, if you haven't read the book, you can kind of get on board with what this man represents.
2: We're in the Rose Garden doing a ceremony to honor the NBA champion, Chicago Bulls.
3: Please be seated and thank you. Thank you all for coming. uh, I'd like to welcome all of you. We were out now just watching some awesome shooting on our uh, basketball court down here that I wish we could have shared with everybody, but it was spectacular. (laughs) Journeyman three-point specialist had reached the pinnacle. I'm picking Chris Hodges to win it. <laughs> While successfully defending his three-point shooting title, Hodges set an all-time record in that year's contest, hitting 19 three-pointers in a row. It
2: was a great feeling. It was one of those things where I just felt like at this given moment and at that time. I felt like I was the best
3: shoot on the planet Earth. Later that season, Hodges would win his first NBA title alongside Michael Jordan and the Chicago Bulls. Within a year, he was cut from the Bulls and never played in the league again.
2: sports if it wasn't about the books. My aunts were sticklers about education. Basketball and baseball and sports were secondary to your education. It was a natural inclination once I got older to gravitate towards being a student athlete and understanding the importance of it.
3: A son of the Civil Rights Movement, Hodges learned early on the importance of freedom, equality, and the moral responsibility that accompanied these values.
2: The Civil Rights Movement and understanding the importance of being kind people. It was something that was driven into the early in age, and knowing that you're never more than the least of your people. and was something that was always part of our family, part of our community. His mother was very involved
1: with the civil rights movement in the 60s, and his grandfather, in fact, was involved in union organizing, which was a risk for his job. So there's a long history of social consciousness and being involved in civil
2: rights. I felt blessed to see active leadership and to see the actual changes that were being made within our community by what we were doing, whether it be voter registration, whether it be housing, whether it be us getting together, getting ready to march up to City Hall.
3: This first-hand experience with social activism also had a profound impact on Hodges' development as a man.
2: The movement instilled in me, at first, a sense of pride of who you are, man. I saw how important that was in my development as a person and as a and advocate for our people.
3: While a student at Long Beach State University, Hodges found that the study of his heritage, coupled with an ever-increasing knowledge of self, impacted his game.
2: The more I studied black studies, the more my game got better. To me, it was one of those things, I'm gonna study harder because my game is getting better the more I study about my people.
3: Drafted by the San Diego Clippers in 1982, Craig Hodges played for a number of different NBA teams, While a remarkable three-point shooter, it was clear that Hodge's sense of activism set him apart. We'd have conversations from time to time over the years, and one of the things he talked about was the fact that a lot of the players that he played with really didn't get the idea of social consciousness, in particular for African-American players that had reached a certain stature in the National Basketball Association. Early in the 1989 season, Hodges was traded to his hometown Chicago Bulls. His relationship with many of the players on the Bulls was a pretty good relationship, but I think they always kept their distance because of Craig's political views and Craig's views about society and what the social issues were of the day.
2: I could never feel like, man, I won a championship and then come back here in the Bentley, knowing that the condition on the east side of Chicago Heights is deplorable like every place else when we talk about urban centers in America. Dr. King, Malcolm, my mom, and their generation got us to a certain point. Now, my mindset is that how can I do for this generation and, and my children and my grandchildren put in place the ability for workforce creation, job creation, being on that stage that we are on. We have the ability to make realistic changes. When
3: Hodges received an invitation to the White House, along with the rest of the 1991 championship Bulls team, he felt that he had to say something.
2: My plan was just to wear dashiki and just to be culturally correct. The night before the trip, something hit me in a spiritual moment of, how do I go without saying something? How do I go and just stand in line? So at that point, came to me to write a letter, and my buddy asked me, man, brother, you sure you want to do that? And in my mind, my parents and my family always gave me the right to speak. They never muzzled me about anything. They always gave me the confidence and and the support that if this is what you feel that you have to do with your life, cool, we cool with that, we got your back. So it was no different there.
3: Despite the sense of unease he felt from some of his teammates and unmoved, by the prospect of any long-term ramifications for his actions, Hodges moved forward with his plan.
2: We had players on the team that was conscious, but they were conscious also that if we make this move, there's going to be economic consequences. Stuff that I didn't look at, they were hip to, which is cool. I'm not negating their commitment or anything, but what I'm saying is that for my mom, And all the the freedom fighters, I wanted them to know that when I went, I wasn't just going for Hodge. I was going for all my boys that I grew up with. I was representing the right way. I wasn't trying to upstage anybody, but I carried the torch for my people that day. I was just saying, I'm playing my small part for my people, and my part is to deliver this message, because they can.
1: Because Craig is who he is, he was willing to take that risk. We, of course, as another generation and older, were concerned that there would be fallout and that it would affect him in terms of his long-term ability to be in the league and to even be able to do more things.
3: Eight months after passing his letter to President Bush, Hodges spoke out again, this time in a June 5th, 1992 article published by the New York Times. Hodges criticized his superstar teammate, Michael Jordan, for failing to speak up about important social issues that affected the African-American community. One month later, Hodges was cut from the Bulls and never played in the NBA again. On October 1st, 1991, one of the NBA's best three-point shooters wore a Daishiki to the White House and passed a note to the president. Who are our heroes? Are they the ones who score the most points? Are they the ones who speak out when everyone else remains silent? Who are our heroes? Are they the ones who sell the most shoes? Or are they the ones who walk among us, who have sacrificed the most? Who are our heroes?
1: And on that note, um, we want to bring out habitual line stepper, Craig Hodges. Come on, brother.
0: There's so many different places where we could start in this conversation, but since everyone got an opportunity to, to see the trailer for the 30 for 30, let's start with the letter. Why do you think no one asked you about the content of the letter?
2: Well, first of all, I want to thank God for giving us a chance to meet in a peaceful environment, and it's only through his mercy and compassion we get a chance to do it. But during that period of time, for me, it was... Um, it was just an, a knowing that something had to be done, as far as we who had, especially with MJ being on our squad at the time, we had access to so many different avenues to make change. But all in all, it was a thing where, you know, as far as the dashiki was concerned, I wore a dashiki for every playoff game for two seasons straight. So it was not never uh, an issue with the, the media that, that was with us locally. But once we got on the international stage, people looked at it differently. Uh, No one questioned the letter because I think during that period of time, you know, now being in the social media age, it's more of an instantaneous reaction to things and you can get your story out. At that point in time, no one would interview me. No one would, um, as far as media-wise, no interviews and no opportunities to actually tell people why I wrote the letter, what was in the letter, and why it was necessary, especially at that t- point in time. Like I said, we had we had 600 murders in the city of Chicago at that point in time, and I felt like that that has to change. And we are the motors that had to and be the engine for that change. The way
0: that you were greeted at the White House, mm-hmm. and you know, I did I got a little bit of more background from
2: from Tim Hallam.
0: I, I thought it was interesting, your approach to doing it. Why was that important to you?
2: Well, one of the one of the biggest lessons I learned at Long Beach State and as far as uh, black studies was concerned and being able to get your message across is not to come across so angry, not to come across as this being a um, militant, angry black man <laughs> as opposed to it being somebody that's thoughtful and taking it from a standpoint of peace. It's about being peaceful in that never shot a weapon in my life, never picked up a weapon in my life. So my pencil is my is my weapon as far as being able to tell my part of the story and being able to stand up for for my people. And I feel that is the biggest part that has been missing, is that we haven't been able to take the emotion out of it and tell our story in a manner in which it's palatable, but also that it's genuine. I feel a lot of times, especially now, so much beefing is going on that the message is being lost. And also the message is being usurped. When I look at Colin Kaepernick and what he's doing, you know the message was about social justice and rights, and now you want to make it about a flag so that you can usurp the message to make it and twist it the way you want to twist it And I think that's the biggest part of the reason that I wrote my book also is that we have to start to tell our own stories and being able to have the ability to do that is very powerful.
0: I I thought of the parallel immediately when you were talking about how you were wearing a dashiki in playoff games previous and people didn't recognize it, not dissimilar to Colin Kaepernick sitting on the bench the first couple of games of the preseason and people not realizing it and then not knowing the story behind him kneeling, which was him talking with a a, a soldier about kneeling as a sign of respect, along with doing the protest. When you were sitting there watching the firestorm that went around Colin Kaepernick, how did you feel?
2: And I called a brother to make sure that he knew that I appreciated him for taking the stance that he took, understanding, you know, as young folks, we play these games and we fall in love with the passion of it, the passion of competition, the passion of seeing where your skills compare to your teammates and compared to your uh, colleagues. So I understood the pain of not being able to play. And a lot of people, you know, you look at it and you say, man, these cats make a lot of money. But at the same time, we love what we do. You know, we, for me, I, even though I wasn't playing in the league, I continued to play hoop. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? I could go to the park and hoop. Different for Colin, he can't go to the park and play a pickup game of football. So it's a, different, it's a different animal. But once again, I told him that I respected. The thing that I loved that he did was he was strategic as opposed to when I, when I sued the league and I went through what I was going through, I was more on the emotional standpoint of wanting to play, wanting to know why I wasn't playing, where he took a different position where he went to his uh, union he got the union to go into arbitration for him, and he hired Mark Garagos, who's one of the best attorneys in, in America, and as far as utilizing his position to get more visibility for your position. And I think that that's been great for Colin because he's been able to maintain. Likewise, he was able to garner enough in salary to continue to promote his mission and to do his mission, whereas, When I was uh, released in 1992, I was an unrestricted free agent with 10 years of service that my offer sheet at that point in time would have been anywhere between five and $10 million. And the ability to use that salary and change what's going on in Chicago was critical. So when I tell people that the Bull's not allowing me or any team not allowing me to make that bread change the condition of Chicago, man. So, when I look at the murders, I say that a lot of the blood is on the hands of a lot of these corporate entities that you know don't do the do the right thing. That's why I was glad to see how many corporations today pulled out from the NRA. And that you know, that's the one thing about America is that change happens when you hit the pocket. When you hit somebody in their pocket, things start to change, you start to see people make different movements so you know when I look at our professional athletes rank and file there wouldn't be an NFL, NBA, Major League Baseball, you take the brothers out of the play. Now how do we as a maturing people, where, where are our thoughts at right now? Are we so stuck on being a multi-multi-multi-multi-multi-millionaire and not care anything about people? and that's the toss-up that we sometimes have to fight.
1: So, with you making a choice to write the letter, to speak out against Michael Jordan, you knew that there was... It wasn't
2: against Michael. Well, no. And, okay.
1: It, it wasn't against Michael. Right. It was what he stood for. Exactly. Or what he didn't stand for. Mm-hmm. You knew that there was going to be some type of backlash. Did you feel that And before you mm-hmm. answer? And... Where did you, like, have the confidence? Where did that confidence come from for you to say it, you know, to speak it and stand firm on it?
2: Right, um, one of the things, and, and I want everybody to know this, me and MJ is tight, man. So don't, don't believe this hype that y'all see. That's my brother and he'll always be my brother. And, and New York Times, when they did the garbage that they did, it was a thing of trying to create an animosity between me and my brother, and I told him, and he knows always that uh, I got your back, him, and he had mine. So the the that part of it has been overblown. But as far as you know, when I was at Long Beach State, having had a chance to study under Dr. Maulana Karinga the founder of Kwanzaa, Dr. Khalid Muhammad, I had I had great and outstanding tutelage, and they they gave me a certain support base that that made me know that. The sacrifices that our ancestors made actually gave us the victory, but we haven't moved as though we we're victorious. We're still moving as though we're in a struggle. It ain't no struggle no more, y'all. We already won, and our ancestors and the blood that has been shed is our victory. Now, how do we move as victors and as opposed to still feeling as though we've been victimized? And I think that's, that, for me, is part of the confidence that not only you learn from the game of basketball and having played on high levels and, and win, and now you have a chance to have a certain part of your constitution that is, un, you, can't, you can't it don't waver, there's no, there's no sellout in that. It's a certain part of me that, seeing what I saw when I was a little boy, as I was telling uh, my partner Al, I have a five-year-old baby boy in California, and just recently I was at his uh, Black History Month celebration he sang Lift Every Voice and Sing and this is 2018 and we sang it when I was five years old thinking that we were on the crux of a victory now we have to realize that the victory is at hand it's all about our organization and our unity that will prove to God that we deserve what he has in store for us coming very shortly.
1: So that you led into your son so that's one of the things that I was trying to like egg you toward we're sitting under oh, no family. Question. Right. And so your right. environment for children, your environment plays a big role no what you become. No doubt. And so knowing where you come from, mm-hmm. tell share a little bit about that.
2: And, and for me I tell family. people all the time, um, I feel blessed, honored, and humbled that my soul came down in the Hodges household. That From the time I was a shorty, it was about reading and writing. My uncles, my grandfather, my grandfather was the the park director and all of that. My uncles played baseball and basketball. So I I had a great balance, man, growing up. I had the balance of knowing that I would never get to play any sports if I wasn't a straight A student. That's what the sisters put on me. The brothers put on me that if you don't play hard as you can and you don't take these elbows and when I elbow you in your face at 10, (laughs) <laughs> if you go in the house crying, I ain't taking you to the gym no more. So dry them tears up before you come in the house. I don't want to hear none of that sniffling or any of that. And so it was a certain, it was a certain discipline that, that lent itself to being able to be prepared to do the things that you do later in life. And, and for me, I, I have a thing with my jump shot right here foundation, form, and follow-through. So you look at those 19 in a row. When I take the ball out of the rack, when my feet hit the ground, that's foundation. In the middle of my shot is form and it's follow-through. It's three parts of your shot. Foundation, form, follow-through. Foundation, form, follow-through. Foundation, form, follow-through. So it's rhythmic. Likewise, I like to use the same mantra in as far as how you lead life, that the foundational stuff, we get reading, writing, rhythmic The form part of it is, now once I have this skill set, how do I see life through my lens and be able to take the form that I want to with this knowledge base that I have? And then the follow through is, what do I make my life become once I leave the house? So my granny granny and my mom always told me that you never know how good a job you do as a parent until your children are grown. And so that being the case, we always have to try to be mindful in what we're trying to get accomplished and until you don't have any more breath to get it done.
0: Most of the people in this room will never have the feeling of hitting 19 shots in a row, even (laughs) if we were standing underneath the basket.
2: A Nerf basket, man, a Nerf basket. You could do it.
0: No, not even a Nerf basket, 19 in a row. I know that a lot of this conversation is about your life and, and your fight for social justice, But I I am curious about the basketball and reading about how hard you pushed yourself when you were younger to get to where you were as an elite pro. So for those who have no idea, when you get everything down and you go on a run and you defend your three-point championship a couple times, you hit 19 in a row, what's that feel like?
2: You know the funny part about it when I look at it, when I look at it, it's hard for me to watch because Cliff Levenston, who was my main hype man for all the three-point competitions, he he and I would talk about it three weeks leading up to it because he had come to me a month before I said, "Cliff, it's too early to think about that, brother. Let's <laughs> chill for a second. But we had talked about me going and doing a complete rack. So that round that I hit 19 in my mind I was going to make 25. So the whole time I'm shooting the basketball, I'm literally hearing the ball go through the net even with 20,000 people there. So it was like I had I didn't wasn't any no one was in the gym but me. The the 20th shot which I felt was one of the best shots I had shot actually because I shot that one I was like, "Oh, that's going in." And I started to move and all the other ones, I held my follow-through until I saw it go in. But that one, I saw I had 12 seconds left to shoot six shots. I knew I had plenty of time, but that one, I rushed just a smidgen. When the ball came out, at that point in time, I heard 20,000 people. And it blew my mind. I'm like, oh, man, I'm not shooting in practice. This is, <laughs> this is the real deal. So it's one of those things where in training yourself and in training your mind to do a certain skill set. When I was fourth, fifth, and sixth grade in Chicago Heights at Gavin Elementary School, I shot in the summer times until the sun went down, and if I shot from in the front of the basket, I couldn't see the rim because of the darkness, but if I went to the corners, I could still get enough light to where now all I was shooting was, I had my eye trained to just shoot the ball over the line that I saw. Not knowing Mm -hmm. that later in Later in life, in training people, I ask I shooters, ask so I'm going to ask you this question. What do you look at when you shoot? What do you look at? Now, I guarantee you that you probably, most of your shots, when you miss, where are you missing at? Front of the rim, because that's what you're looking at, all right? When I look at the, when I'm looking at the basket, I'm looking at two inches inside of the rim and six inches up, mentally. Not that I can look down in the basket, that's two inches lifted up six. But I always try to make six inches above my target where my sight line is. That was from elementary school. When I'm just shooting that ball over that line every time, just get it over the line. It ain't gotta go far, just get it over the line, get it over the line. I wasn't realizing that I was training my eye that no longer am I looking at the rim, I'm looking at a point in space. Now we take the rim out of play. I'm not looking at the rim anymore. I'm looking at this point in space that's six inches above the target We got to know that two balls go in the basket at one time, right? So why should you miss one? There's no reason to miss. All you have to do is think and visualize the point where the two balls come together and put your ball on the intersection of that, and you score.
0: Do you have a favorite spot on the floor? Corners. I always felt like watching you as a kid, if you got the ball in transition in the right corner, it was
2: money. Yeah, it was over. And, And, you know, when I look at when I look at uh, the way the game is played now, there's so many people shooting three-pointers that shouldn't be shooting them. But that, for real, y'all, y'all see it just like I see it. Don't play it like y'all don't see it. And the, the game is the analytical game that threes count more than twos, where our mindset was when we were winning championships with the Bulls and with the Lakers was that it's about efficiency and being able to be efficient to the point that The ball is moving, so if we move the ball offensively, we're going to play stronger defense because everybody gets touches. Now we see the game as a game of dribble, dribble, dribble. Come give me a screen and roll. I come off screen and roll. I look for my three, I kick it to you, you look for a three. It's a a big difference, so it's hard for me to even watch it, man, so I like the old school game. So
1: here at Connect Gallery, myself, I think Art is in everything. Absolutely. You know the game of basketball. You know being a chef. Art is instilled in everything. What What got you fired up? Did you have not necessarily a ritual, but what got you in that space to um, make those shots or just to play the game at, at you a know, high level?
2: The weekend of the 19 in a row, my song was "Mr. Magic" with Grover Washington. That I tell people that you, know, you can almost study the game through music and see the changes in the game. So you look at early in the game, it was a blues and a jazzy run in the game, and that's what you saw in the Globetrotters. That's what you saw in the early part of the game. You saw a jazzy play. As it came, then it became a, a jazz to rhythm and blues. You know, you, Then you seen Dr. J and doing his thing. You see that type of movement. Now you look at the game, the game is played on that rap, my boy D Rose. I tell people D Rose would still be playing if he played the game on a jazz beat and not to the rap beat. You follow me? Because if you follow all of his footwork movements, they're all dynamic to that boom, boom. It wasn't any real smooth movements. and that's why I felt like. We were blessed to play in the golden age of the game that tied together generational play. I, had a, I was blessed to play against Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. I was blessed to play with MJ. So we got, we got where the game transited into what it is today. So I tell people, in this game that you're playing now, Steph Curry is sampling what I did. Just like the music brothers are sampling what Stevie and did. We were blessed to play on that beat and that rhythm. That, and it's so cool that when we were playing, you know, we would go at each other, but it was about honest competition and seeing where you fit. I ain't got no beef with you. Where well, now is a thing where I'm colder than you and I got to, no, nah, and that's, that's the part that I think a lot of social media has egged things on that way to make it a beefing situation. I'm better than you as opposed to, hey, man, a knife sharp and a knife. So we got to see where y'all games is at and let's go at it like that. Who do you like watching play and why? Kawhi Leonard. Kawhi Leonard because it's about playing. It's not about dunking on somebody and you know what I'm saying? It's about making plays. I'm here to make plays. So I'm not so excited when I hit a shot and I'm not so low when I miss a shot. I'm supposed to do what I do, and that's the part of the game in old school compared to new school. New school, I hit a three. I got to let everybody know I hit a three, and I'm saying that's what you're supposed to do, (laughs) so why are we making it like you did something? Man, that's what we do. We shoot, make shots.
0: How would you go about impressing upon a younger player that that's your approach Mm -hmm. is the
2: better approach? And it's not even so much about better, it's about what is, you know what I'm saying? So we can, we can have four or five different approaches to making a two-foot jump stop, you know what I'm saying? We can have different approaches into going into our one-count stride stops, but we gotta know what those are. So I'm telling children, study the game like you study your math and your English. You see something that you see a player do, And see, that's another thing that we were blessed that we were blessed to have where the game wasn't always in our face and able to get to. We had our games with tape delayed when I was growing up. So I'd have to watch Earl Monroe and Walt Fraser do their thing on a Sunday, and I wouldn't see no more hoop until the next Sunday. So all during the week, we'd have to remember what they did and go and work on that. And it's different now when you can have, you a high school player, you can go home and watch your game on cable. You know what I'm saying? You, and it, it, it gasses me. I was coaching at Rich East High School up until about a month and a half ago because the parents got so crazy. So I let my son have it. You can have that, man. I'm, I'm too far into this game, and I respect the game so much that I'm not going to let anybody else disrespect it. But it's wild when you look at these young folks who are playing, and their game is based upon how many Internet followers you have that your game is based upon your AAU stats. And then it's, it's, and what I love that's coming down right now, I love what's coming down with all these crooked coaches in the game and all of this madness that they have been putting into the game and now it's starting to come home to roost, Rick Pitino. I love it because you've been exploring young African-American talent for the last 30 years and ain't nobody been saying Jack. Ain't nobody been saying Jack. And now it's coming home to roost and it's righteous timing. I love it because I know my boy in 1978, 1979, Raymond McCoy from Bloom High School, Duke University wanted to give him an accounting degree, a town car, and an apartment and $20,000. Texas A&M was going to give him an oil well to come to school down there. Sam Gilbert at UCLA was paying everybody. So we look at this thing as, oh... Man, they were doing that. Come on, man. The economics of America is exploitation. So when it comes to our young athletes, they're being pimped. And at the highest level, even to the point where I tell people, if I got a son, no, if someone else has a son who's a Caucasian, that's 14 years old, that can hit the ball like Tiger Woods, he's going to be able to golf at 15 if he wants to. Why can't a brother that's six foot nine, two hundred and forty pounds graduate from Simeon High School? Why can't he go pro right now? What's the problem with that? It's economics, and it's economics to the point that realizing that at some point in time, black people are gonna come get sophisticated with where we spend our money and how we spend our money, and that's gonna be the freedom of our folks.
0: It's funny because even tonight, I was paying attention. If you haven't heard, the Sean Miller, the head coach of the Arizona Wildcats is not coaching tonight. And Mm -hmm. he was caught on an FBI wiretap offering DeAndre Ayton, his star player, $100,000 to come down to Tucson to play. And so Sean Miller is not going to face the music tonight. He's just going to bow out. And and there won't won't be any uh, consequences yet. I imagine there will be severe consequences. But here's the incredible part. Found this out today. Miller will make more money from Arizona being fired for cause than if they just willy-nilly fired him. If they just fired him, he would only be owed $10 million. If they fire him with cause, there's a kicker in his contract that he's going to be paid $15 million.
2: But you know what's so cool about it? Think about how cool that is, right? You can be crooked and have a cold golden parachute, right? But let's go even further. Donald Sterling, a racist and he get a $2 billion golden parachute. So you can't tell me racism, like crime, don't pay, right?
0: And Donald Sterling <laughs> is someone that you played come on, for. Come man,
2: it's, it's significant. And it's simple, it's one of those things where we can, we can play it off, we can play it off, and we, we may or may not say something about it, but come on, man, everybody can see it. Everybody knows what's happening. It's just a matter of a lot of people, especially if, you are, if you're a parent, and you have a son that's six, seven, six, eight, you probably ain't gonna say nothing to them about the exploitation, because you, man, I gotta get my son getting ready to get his. So when I look at a lot of stuff, like for instance, the stuff with the women's gymnastics, how can you have a daughter who goes into an examining room with a doctor, comes out and tell you, that cat in there doing some crazy stuff, mom, and it take how many years? How many years? Come on. But this is the thing. Parents are living vicariously through their children. So I'm not going to say nothing because my daughter might be able to be a gold medalist or my daughter might be able to get these endorsements. And that's where in lies the problem is that it's always my next one. that I, That's going to be my paycheck and my daughter or my son is going to be able to retire me. That's my 401k as my child. Sickening.
0: How do we get out of that? Because Real Sports did a great story about all of the travel teams that are out there for yes. children. And I, I I mean, I'm a little younger than you. So I, I do remember a time where you were going out and you were playing. Yeah, you may have had your... your I play Jackie Robinson West. So I have my little league team right. or I have my school team. Right. But in the afternoon after school, when we weren't in season, I was out playing with my friends. And now... You're seeing this proliferations of towns that are popping up all to serve travel softball, travel volleyball, travel basketball, travel football, seven on seven leagues. Mm -hmm. How do we get parents to not look at their own children as a commodity?
2: And that's that's the biggest thing is, is realizing that the exposure for a child, expose them to different sports, different hobbies. So that they're able to find their passion, and you're able to identify by, oh, oh, okay, he's like, okay, okay, let's give him an opportunity at that. Now, in that, there comes a certain level of understanding about it. Okay, my son is improving. Now all of these coaches are coming at me about my son playing on their AAU team. Blew my mind. Trevor Reese, I coached him in in Los Angeles. He told me when he was playing AAU, he was on the team with uh, him, um, Keith, uh, Kevin Love,
0: um, Isaiah Thomas James, on that James team. And
2: there was a bunch of them. Now, every time they would win a tournament, it was $10,000 a player, man. So, how can you tell a youngster that's seeing this, hey, man, that ain't the way you want to go? And that's where we have to come in as a community to be able to say, okay, the most important thing is for you to be in a position your senior year to be recruited. How do you go about making sure that you're, you're academically ready, that you're mentally ready, and that all your paperwork is good to go? Those are the types of things that we have to start to put more on to our athletes to be take the part of student as important, as opposed to the athlete being the most important part of the thing.
1: Do, don't you think that um, just having a foundation of fiscal responsibility and understanding that Understanding how to move around in world culture, other than looking to the game as a means of getting out, okay. that plays a you know a yeah, large
2: role. That's that's one of the misnomers too. Is getting out, getting out from what? Why do we the yeah. only people that want to get out of our hoods? We the only people want to get out of where we're from, you know, as opposed to saying, I want to come back and give this and see the next generation grow up. And like with me, it's, it's more, the, the great part of teaching the game is to see when a student athlete gets the point that you're trying to make. So when we talk about them skill drills, when you see it light up in their eye and they actually get it, man, that's what it's about.
1: To get out. Is that recognizing what you don't have immediately? And we have grown into a society I'm speaking of African-Americans, as we always want to assimilate to have the thing instead of honoring, you know, what our ancestors, you know, right, laid down right. for us.
2: No doubt about it. And and to see that a lot of times when we're talking about getting out, we're looking over the fence and see what somebody else has and theirs look better than ours and, and as a point to saying, okay, how can I improve my stead over here? How can I create things that I know is necessary. Like right now in Park Forest, we don't have a grocery store. So that's my energy right now is working on bringing a grocery store so that we can start to harness the dollars, man. It's 90, 99% black community almost. So it's, it's certain things that we have the power to do, whether we're athletes or whether we're students. And, and I think that's the, the cool part is that right now I still consider myself a student athlete. So I work out and I research.
1: What do you think the, like, how do you think you can get to the minds of the athletes to understand that the money isn't the goal? Mm -hmm. You know, it's building a foundation and building some integrity.
2: And I think right now with social media, what we have is we have a generation that's seeing that. I think, you know, with the the models of Colin Kaepernick, LeBron is doing a lot of stuff, D-Wade. We have a lot of, we have, a, we have more players now who are speaking to the issues and with the, the advent of social media, the message is getting out. And I just look, for me, I look at young white folks and looking at their mindset when they look at the condition of black folks and they're looking at it in a, in a righteous eye compared to who they, how their granddaddies looked at it. And that's the cool part for me that I know it's changing when I go to Long Beach State to speak for Black History Month, and I had more questions from white students. That's when I know it's some powerful stuff going on, whether we feel it or not. I tell people it's just like winning a championship. June 1991, we're getting ready to play the Lakers. It's unforeseen whether or not we're gonna win, but it's a certain energy and a spirit that we felt, that we knew this is going down. Now, how much are we gonna win by? We don't know, but we're going to win. And that's the feeling that I have Wherein my people are concerned is that we got a victory coming. If you look on the horizon of cycles and people within those cycles, the brown man has come up, the yellow man has come up, ours is coming. So when I see Oprah the other day and white folks hollering for a sister to be president, Sisters, y'all done got, y'all done, But it's our rise that's coming. That this rise that's coming for us, brothers, is so powerful. But if we are not unified and organized, we're not going to get what God is getting ready to give us.
1: So, I'm sorry. Okay. So, one thing that you mentioned is uh, recognizing, you know, the... Um, white kids mm-hmm. coming together, mm-hmm. understanding. And I take that back to music mm-hmm. as well. No doubt. In the 70s, early 80s, it was more of a finesse thing. And we were still kind of like boxed out of the whole. The internet, social media, all of these things allowed us to see, again, immediately what we didn't have. Because back then, you really didn't know because you were, you were moving around in, a, in smaller spaces. The internet allows you to see it all over the globe.
0: I, I so. really think that the point that both of you guys are making, like, I was really encouraged this past week by watching, and now we're at gener- Generation Z. You know, we, we complain about millennials. We're, now we're at gen- Generation Z where they have no fear speaking to power. So, and it was on display this week in, in, in a beautiful, beautiful lovely. way. So this is what I'm getting at. So from Grover,
1: Washington to Public Enemy to hip-hop being a major influence in galvanizing youth to to the point where youth don't see color, but it's the power of the music, it's the power of hip-hop that's created that change and that, and to where, you know, growing up, white kids listening to Method Man, you know, listening to, you know, Too Short or whoever, mm-hmm. is- they're beginning, they're coming closer to the issues and they go to school with black kids Mm -hmm. and they're hanging out and they're seeing like, damn,
2: this motherfucker is no different than me. Absolutely. And I think that's the biggest part for me is that we get out of this thing about beefing. My book that I'm writing right now that I'm working on is about white privilege and I'm interviewing all white people about it. And that's the part that the dismantling of white supremacy racism. It's being dismantled by their own. It's, it's happening not, right in the right, backyard. Right, It's right, it's happening. So don't fight it, let's d- just make sure we stay on the positive to replace it. See, we gotta build the stuff to replace that. And that's, we, got, we, can't, we ain't got time to worry about it. We gotta spend time creating over on this side the balance and the counter to that because it's done. It's, actually, it's all falsehood if we, if we truly know. It's falsehood. So it has no standing. There ain't no foundation to it. So we have to just know that all of these lies that have been taught to us, we got to disregard them. And that's what's coming right now as far as disclosure. We can see it happening. I just want
1: to, I'm going to get off course just a little bit. This show tonight, this was planned to happen during the art show that's up right now, Lindsay List. If you look around everything that we're speaking about right now is up on these walls, you know, and it speaks to power and it speaks to the change that we're trying to make, you know, through art and through sports and through just being human beings, you know, leading in love. So go ahead, we're back.
0: What's the moment when you realize that you've been blackballed? (laughs) And how-
2: When that first check didn't come, man. (laughs) (laughs) We don't get that check. But, you know, even before that is training camp is getting ready to start and you don't have an agent. You don't have a contract. You talk to your union, your union tell you they got to get you an agent that a team owes a favor so they'll know you're not a bad guy. My question to Charlie Grantham, who's the executive director of the union at that time and Isaiah, who's the president, what did I do, man? What did I do? I just won two world championships and three consecutive three-point titles. I ain't never had a technical foul. I ain't never been fined in the league. What have I done? When it's other brothers that's on teams who have been charged with rape, and I can't get no run for nobody. Now I done won two championships with the best team ever. Can't nobody use this knowledge that I got about how how they winning? Come on, man. So so, and when I look at my case, my case is my case was cold. How they did me? But the way they did our boy, Mahmoud Abdul-Raouf, colder than Hodge. Colder than Hodge for me as a hooper. Yeah, my salary, all of that, but I love the game. And I love to see where you can get into the game and where you fall. So I would have loved to play another four years to see when I wasn't going to pass no more because I had won two championships. I wasn't passing no more. I was going to go and see, let's do the summer league thing like we do, do 40s and 50s. I wanted to see what that was like. It didn't happen. Now, McMo was doing 40s and 50s. And y'all take this man out of the game at, that's Muhammad Ali at basketball, McMo. So when I look at how they did that, brother, crazy, crazy.
0: It, it's funny because people will talk about how they had never seen the stuff that Steph Curry was doing. Come on, I'm Like, man. if you go back and look at Mahmoud mm-hmm. Abdul-Rahoom's game. I tell y'all, game,
2: I tell y'all game to go watch. Watch Mahmoud Abdul-Raouf against John Stockton. He gave John Stockton 56. If y'all get a chance, YouTube that. And if y'all got some young basketball players, watch that, brother. That's legit.
0: One of the things I walked away from reading the book is, is after, as you're describing this, I'm, I want to know, and maybe it's just a matter of grace, mm-hmm. how did you not spiral Down into a world of negativity after all of this.
2: You know, I was I was um, self I self-diagnosed myself. I was clinically depressed, but my sons were freshmen and sophomore in high school at that point in time. So I had to take my mindset to a whole nother level because these young brothers I got to make sure they continue to be the scholars that they are, and they want to be student athletes. So for me. It was every morning, get up, make sure my boys ready to go to school. They was, their mom was in California, so it was me and them. And the thing that I love about them, and I tell them every time I see them, I'm humbled and I'm honored that I'm, I get to be y'all dad because at that point in time, when I wasn't in a position to get y'all Air Jordans, y'all didn't go in the corner and sling to get them, you know what I'm saying? Like some of your boys was doing. Y'all took education seriously. Y'all were able, we were able to talk about what I was going through on a political level to let you know that, hey man, stay on top of your books. This game ain't guaranteed, but your mind is. What you think up here can't nobody take away from you. You know what I'm saying? So make sure you're on top of it. So those are the things that kept me buoyant to the point where, and I love life, man. It ain't about, and then in looking at you know, what has happened to Muhammad Ali, Jack Johnson's, you know, Paul Robeson's, people who had to leave the country to do their thing. I felt blessed and honored that I'm part of that fabric, but we were still able to maintain our dignity as people, man, and not let their influence dictate how I live the rest of my life. Whenever I have
0: discussions on the radio show that kind of marry social issues with sports. I'm always frustrated as a host that there are some people, especially when it comes to ownership and players, I'm always frustrated dealing with listeners who see themselves as the owner and don't see themselves as the player. Because more likely than not, you're the player. Now you might own a small business and maybe that puts you in the mindset of an owner, But most of us are in that same place that players are in. Why do you think we don't, and I'm using the royal we, why don't we see ourselves as the player? And the complaint is always, well, these guys are millionaires. Well, the the, owners are billionaires.
2: But that's it, that's the thing is that people can relate to players because they're closer to players than they are to owners. So people can relate to being, oh man, I seen Scottie Pippen. Or I seen, I seen D. Rose or whatever. Oh, yeah. They look, man, he got all that bread. But you know, I tell people when we walk out of Chicago Stadium and young brothers are come up, oh, man, can I have him? Oh, man, look at Michael Jordan. And Jerry Reinsdorf walked right by him. And they'd be like, man, Michael got so much money. I say, brother, see that dude right there? I say, who is that, man? Man, that's the cat that owned Michael. He owned, yeah, he owned the Bulls. You don't see nobody chasing them to get an autograph, do you? Not at all. We don't realize that the psychological part of this thing is what ownership loves to see. They love to have that fan base that's going to say, man, them niggas making too much money. Simple. And that's what they're looking at, man. How you complaining and you making $20 million already? And you're talking about you want a new contract. You don't deserve. And that's where the owners can thrive on their little minions out here to throw them rocks at the players. So when I look at then stupid stuff that we do as a group of people, we pick a Donald Trump just because he a billionaire. That's the only reason. So the poor, excuse my French, poor white people aspire to be that but do you know he ain't thinking about you?
0: That's part of my point. Like and, that, that, and, that, and it's one of the things that you mentioned in the book where you're, you're not just speaking for black people, Absolutely. although that is, that is clearly one of the things that is important to you. Right. I, I always wonder why we see in elections, we see poor white people voting against their own interest. And it's, it's a frustrating thing when you want to have a conversation With people of our generation and older that don't understand that, for the most part, we're all in the same boat.
2: But it's dreamscape. So we got a dreamscape, man. It's a lottery ticket. You hear me? I go, oh, man, I vote for Trump. He going to make... He rich, I'm rich. For real? That ain't how it works. And that's the part where the psyche is sickening at times because... The models that have been placed in front of all of us have not been realistic in a lot of cases. So we have our young people thinking that, I tell people it's a funnel when you talk about athletics and entertainment. And the funnel is like this everybody can get in there, but it's only a trickle actually getting through. But they're going to put that one that made it through, oh, you can do that. Come on, man. I tell people, when I came out of uh, Richies High School in 1978, the chance of me being a professional athlete is one in 52,000. Almost easier to catch lightning in a jar. Now, if you compare that to the international scope of things, it's probably one in 150,000, something like that, to actually be a professional athlete. So you got a better chance to be a doctor, a lawyer, a scientist than to be a pro, pro athlete. But those are the things that we're not promoting on TV. We're promoting the endorsements, the high end of this thing. We're not promoting just a. what's wrong with making a nice living? What's wrong with being in a nice neighborhood? It don't have to be Winneka. It don't have to be Beverly Hills, but I can still have a righteous Community and love my community just like you love Beverly Hills and Winneka, And that's the part where I think we have to be more grounded as a group of people to get this thing, get these points across. So when an athlete gets
1: signed and they get a large contract, they are part of a, a unit that controls their movement and they don't even realize it. So say, for instance, their agent gets their endorsements, helps them find a home, you know, and so on and so Mm -hmm. forth. Mm -hmm. And they're not their own man, even when they think that they are.
2: Right.
1: How do, you know, how do we combat that? How do we get that education to them?
2: It's like everything else. It's got to start young. It's got to start young, and it has to start with the mindset that when you move through this thing, you're going to be your own person at some point in time. Now we have to make sure that as we bring you through this thing and mentor you through this thing and get you to start to make decisions and see the results of the impact and the the consequences of the choices. And I think that's, that's one of the biggest things, especially with our young brothers, that we got to start to get them to think on consequences and that these choices that I make, they carry heavy consequences. And some of them are life and death. And that when we coming to this thing is, as far as me being a father and granddad is how do we teach that information that and to give our young folks uh, a mind that's, that's free but at the same time is disciplined that you know the power to define is the greatest power that we have is our ability to mold this thing into what we want it to be and don't allow anybody else to put that power on you and say this is what I have to be
1: so being a, a coach mm-hmm. and also being uh, someone who's active in the community, mm-hmm. when you're coaching and when you're working with young people, how do you begin to instill that early?
2: I think one of the biggest things, too, is, is our ability as teachers and coaches to be able to listen, to be able to see where this child is coming from, to see what, what's happening at the crib, what's happening on the way to the school, what's happening on the way to the crib, and that your your title actually becomes part parenting and that you gotta be cool with that. You have to be cool with knowing that it's a lot bigger than you and that you have to be able to touch more than just your own child, man. And I think that's where we are now that, you know, we, especially with social media, we can get to these messages out here so rapidly and to so many different people that now we have to make sure that they're strategic and that they carry, they carry the weight that we want them to carry.
0: To stay in that that same kind of line of questioning, you make a a big point in the book about talking about your experience at Long Beach State. Absolutely. When it comes to coaches, Mm -hmm. what makes a great coach, and and how are they able to get through to
2: you? Right. Um, Tex Winter, who to me is the greatest coach ever, (laughs) you know, um, he taught us that if I have... 12 players, and I have this system, and I'm going to put it on my players regardless. That's not good coaching. Good coaching is the ability to see your cadre of players and have a system that is palatable for the complement of players you have. And that within that, now you have a base of reference to start from and to be able to say, okay, this is what we have as a group. This is how we're going to play. And great coaches have great systems. So if you look at teams that have won, whether it was the San Francisco 49ers when Bill Walsh was there, when you look at what Belichick has done in New England, you look at what Phil Jackson has done, you look at what uh, Popovich has done, and you'll see coaches that have a system in place that regardless to who the players are, you can plug them in, you can bring, you can get um, uh, Duncan can go out and then you can plug in a Paul Gasol. <laughs> You know what I'm saying? Robinson so, goes out. You yeah, play, Exactly. You and, and then you in. Exactly. So it's, it's your system and your system being able to funnel players through. And likewise, when you have a system such as the, the teams that I talked about, so many times, once the system gets in place, the coaches are doing really very little coaching. Now it becomes a thing that veterans teaching younger guys, teaching younger guys, so it's constantly players teaching players more than anything, and the coaches, you know, plugging in um, specialty stuff when needed. And that's what we saw in Phil. You look, at, you look at the coaching staffs that Phil Jackson has had compared to any coaching staff through the history of the game. He's probably had the best staffs of anybody. When you talk about the number of years experience in the NBA of what we had in Chicago, we had over 100 years of NBA experience on our bench. So the amount of basketball that they've seen, the amount of adjustments that have been made, they've seen it all. So now it's just a matter of getting our guys to realize that, especially with the triangle, we made adjustments throughout the season. So when the playoffs came, there were very little, there's very little a team could throw at us that we hadn't seen before and that we couldn't adjust to. So that's why I say, you know, the triangle as well as any other system that maintains a period of time, you'll see those coaches usually be successful.
0: But the relationship with Tex wasn't just basketball.
2: Oh, no. Tex, for me, Tex brought me, Tex was a coach at Northwestern my senior year in high school. He got the job at Long Beach State, like, March my senior year. And me and him became almost father and son type relationship. And and almost, and even to the point where, we would have some serious, serious conversations on black and white issues. And that was so cool to me when you're talking about an elderly white cat sitting with a young brother in black studies and I come in his office and he's like, Craig, what you studying? I'm studying black studies. What you gonna do with that? And I'm like, what well, am gonna do with anything else? I'm gonna study, I'm gonna help my people with it. So I felt this is the most potent thing for me to help my people with and to sit down with Tex and him talk about that that's, that's, that's the part that I feel like gives a young person confidence that when you can have, you don't necessarily have to agree on every point, but you respect it and that you're, you're, what you're thinking about is respected. That gives you confidence to go and be able to communicate in an environment like this. How do we
0: use what you've done? Uh, and again, I, the, the parallels with Colin Kaepernick, how do we use those foundations to build bridges to discuss some of these issues oh, versus the people that are trying to destroy those bridges. Right, and I
2: think this, this type of, that's, that was one of the things I was going to talk to you guys too about, how can we keep this movement going? That so many times we have panel discussions, we have this and that, but we have to be able to get some traction going, that whenever we come together in these types of groups, I would love to get everybody's information so that I can stay in touch, either through your emails or whatever, because I think that's the biggest part, is that the dialogue starts. Now, when we leave out of here, everybody's going, that's what I love about it, the reality is this. When you leave, you got your truth. She has her truth. He has his truth. Everybody leaves with the truth. But how do we continue the reality to move in the direction that we want? And that's where we have to come together like this, that I feel like these are so critical, but it has to have some staying power to it. And I think that's one of the things that with black folks, especially our community, we have more meetings. Y'all, you know I ain't lying. You know I ain't lying. We have more meetings that don't pan out, and there is so much energy loss in it that energy is so critical and that the current of energy has to keep going and how do we do that and that it can't just be a frivolous thing where i'm going to have a party partying is cool but i want to party when we get to the victory and the victory is won so this is cool so now let's continue to build on this type of stuff
0: ladies and gentlemen
2: two-time nba
0: champion as a player two-time nba champion as a coach three-point legend Craig Hodges.
2: Yo!